next installment of the SUS News podcast series where we interview newsmakers and discuss the news and applications relevant to the global unmanned technologies community. I'm your program host, as always, Patrick Egan, and let's say hello and a warm Texas welcome to our co-host, <laughs> Mr. Gene Robinson. Uh, hello, Patrick. Man, it's good to be sitting back in the right seat of this rig for a while. It's been uh, It's been some time. It has, you know, uh, I know. People are like, hey, what happened to the podcast? And I, well, you know, I feel a little like uh, Ryan Seacrest without the money, you know. Uh, <laughs> there's just so much going on and uh, so many things to do, yeah. and it's hard to track yep. it all down. And, and it, not that there's like a shortage of uh, subjects to discuss or relevant topics or news or, or whatever. Um, there's a lot going on all the time. It's just, it's just hard to, you know, stay up on all of it, which I know same deal with you. Every time I talk to you, you're, you know, here, there and everywhere doing some fun. So what, you know, what have you been up to? Let's get the, the field update from Gene. What have you been up to? <laughs> well, you know, as usual, I'm still doing a lot of search and rescue stuff. Um, I just went on a couple of cases uh, last week. Some of them are uh, pretty famous and kind of gruesome, but um, <laughs> I, I mean, I know, that's, that's the way it goes. Yeah, you're like, it, oh, I mean, it's, 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 uh, they're all crimes, you know? So uh, yeah, it's, uh, it's been pretty crazy. Uh, I, I don't know. You probably remember that uh, we just started a, a research project with the Texas state university and uh, 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 Mizzou, the, University of Missouri, and uh, we're doing extending what we started in 2015 with the uh, search for clandestine graves, and uh, mm. we are kind of expanding that to uh, to include some of the new sensors that are coming out, like multispectral and near infrared and FLIR and that sort of thing, and uh, already come up with some really really good science on that one. So I'm pretty excited about that. And then, uh, you know, of course, everything got slowed down because of COVID-19. And, and, and I always like to say I've been tested several times for several different reasons, not because I was exposed, but just because I had to as a, you know, from a department. And I like to say that I am positively negative. So, you know, that, that's kind of the way uh, my, my life has been rolling the last few months. I see. Well, that's good that you're uh, staying healthy. Um and I know, weren't you, uh, it sounds like a television show. I don't know why there's not a TV show about this. So should write up the treatment. And because uh, that, that, that uh, clandestine grave thing sounds uh, interesting. And you got thousands of years of history to work with here, you know. Now, <laughs> the other true. thing, so we, we did a podcast and you talked about the body farm. And I know when we talked on the phone, you were like, eh, body farm, blah, blah, blah. You know, and again, you know, I chuckle and it's dark and all the rest of that. But so what's going on down on the farm? Well, uh, you know, it's, it's really interesting because we've taken a, uh, um, a very proactive look at cases that we've run across in the past and, and tried to determine whether we could, uh, could detect them you know, well, so, or much sooner than, you know, some of them go 12, 18 months or years even. So uh, in, we have been able to reenact with, with the volunteers that we get. I mean, there are a lot of folks that volunteer for this job. And uh, when, when, they, when they pass, they, they allow us to continue using their, their, uh, 
there remains for this sort of research. And, uh, you know, we've, we've gotten to reenact and, and uh, basically uh, recreate cases that we've run into in the past. And it's been really fascinating. And, uh, you know, I, I kind of, in macabre humor sort of style, I like to say, you know, I see dead people, but uh, uh, it's, uh, it's one of the things that's, uh, that's necessary and, and uh, it's uh, some really good science. So uh, yeah. we're working, working pretty hard at it. Quit giggling. You just keep giggling in the background. <laughs> Well, because I got all these dark humor jokes that I keep thinking about as I go on, and I'm not going to crack them because, uh, you know, we don't need to go there uh, right now. Well, but, it's uh, serious work, though. It it really is serious work, though. You know, all kidding aside, I mean, this this is stuff that, uh, you know, is just another utilization of drones that, uh, that, that we can bring to bear to help solve crimes and, and really close, you know, provide closure for families who uh, who need it. Uh, it is a part of life, you know. It is that that is part of it. So, yeah, it's always interesting. And like I said, I can't believe there's not a show. But hey, you know, uh, can't again, uh, Ryan Seacrest without the money. Um, so you know, okay, that's interesting. So let's move on to uh, any news stories. I know you've been. Uh, we we have talked about a few um, few of the current uh, issues, um, and I was wondering if there was anything that's been uh, rubbing your fur the wrong way here as of late. <laughs> Well, uh, let's gosh, the 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 list is kind of long, and you know the the whole thing with Lance, and uh, now they're expanding the, the 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 number of airports because there were so many complaints about being shut down and not being able to get waivers. That's that's one of the things that's always interesting, and of course RID is another one. We're waiting on it to see how that's going to hit us. And uh, I'm just, uh, you know, kind of concerned all the way around, you know, of, you know, is it really going to weed out the, the pretenders in this thing? Are we really going to get professional about this? And, of course, we training public safety, you know, that's what we stress is you're going to be a professional and you're going to abide by the rules. And you're going to do everything. And so we're kind of, you know, we're kind of sitting around waiting to see what the next little nuance is going to be in the rules that we're going to have to adapt to. Yeah, well, I'm not buying any of that. I, I think more people are just going underground. Uh, you know, we've done some stories, and the let's say recertification for pilots is down. Um, really, the numbers that the FA put out as far as the registrations are concerned are totally bogus. Because during after the Taylor case, uh, many of them had to be thrown out, but they didn't throw them out. They left them in there. Um, the other thing I noticed is, you know, I was t- teaching you know drone production for television and film. And I will say that the I, – I, I don't know how many current over-people waivers there are right now. I think they're so it's under 70, plus or minus, whatever. I'm not sure exactly. But uh, those guys have a lot of work because every TV commercial I see has drone in it. And it's usually over a road or people or, you know, concerts or, you know, whatever and wherever. Um so those people are, I must be flying all over the country doing work, or people are breaking the rules. The other thing with the RID thing, I, I looked at uh, what was handed over to OMB, and, um, you know, I'd heard through the grapevine that there wasn't going to be any broadcast, and there wasn't going to be internet, and there's towers in there. Um, so I don't, I don't think those are repeaters that are in the diagram. Did a little story about that. 
Um, and it looks like uh, DJI is going to get an app mandate, and you will be able to use one of their apps to do RID, or you can buy, Intel's making some aftermarket equipment you can buy, and talking to people who are going to be providing the, um, let's say, cellular network RID, they're going to throw in that uh, RID for free, or the subscription you buy for data to upload pictures and um, data while you're in the air, which will probably be competing with bandwidth for your C2. But hey, the, these nice people at uh, T-Mobile are gonna, you know, kick in free RID for you. And, uh, you know, then that leads to some other problems with, you know, they're going to supposedly log all of your flights and keep that data so they can go back and, you know, if, if for some reason, I guess you get uh, some sort of violation, they could come back and violate you for transgressions in the past, which is one of the hangups that AOPA had with ADSB. Hence, they no ADSB in all airspace on all aircraft. You know, that was back in the day when uh, AOPA... Uh, was still like yep. let's say a guard dog instead of lap dog uh, with the FAA, but the, you yeah, know as something, a pilot I remember that. Yeah, exactly. You know, so uh, people were you know that was an interesting some interesting conversations on the small UAS arc that transpired between ALPA and AOPA and the FAA and you know the administrator and some other folks. Uh, it, you know, interesting thing um, on that. The other thing is I think will allow for people to start paying, you know, landing fees, which will be a conduit to help pay for uh, UTM infrastructure, you know, for Amazon and, and Google and, you know, everyone else. You know, billionaires, I mean, we know he's down on his luck, old Bezos, right? You know, we all saw that in the news. <laughs> And I wouldn't want that guy to have to shoulder the whole cost because it's going to be a lot of money. Uh, radar doesn't grow on trees. Last time I checked, except or it, didn't you get a? Didn't you have? Weren't you building radars in your uh, garage, Gene? As, yeah, as a matter of fact, I was. But the radiation, well, the neighbors didn't. Yeah, they, they took a dim view of it. You know, when I was testing them. <laughs> that and it was melting all the candy, the Halloween candy. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Killing the trees and you know. <laughs> So I had to give that up. Anyway, uh, yeah. So those were those are that's kind of a big one. That's supposedly going down before Christmas. And I hear uh, you're not even going to have to pay these shysters, uh, you know, money for over people waivers. But that's going to be all the thing of the past and beyond visual line of sights kicking off in January. Oh my God, it's going to be great. You believe any of that? We'll wait and see. Uh, we're withhold comment. We've been waiting for a long time. I listened to one of the first podcasts yesterday from, I think, 2012. I was like, wow, not much has changed. I mean, we do we can fly with near 107, so things have changed. But anyway, I could go on and on about that. But let's bring on our guest. Uh, I guess, you know, Jeremy Jacob here from the uh, Oklahoma School of Mechanical and Aerospace Engineering at Oklahoma State University. Hello, Jamie. How's it going? Oh, pretty good, Patrick. Thank you for uh, having me on. Well, we appreciate having you on. Uh, Oklahoma, you know, uh, people that don't know, Oklahoma has been, let's say, pro-UAS, pro-drone, whatever, for a very long time. 
I uh, met representatives of uh, Oklahoma state government at the Paris Air Show many moons ago. And I went, I, I don't know, maybe even 2011, I don't know. And they had their uh, people set up there, and uh, there were people there talking about unmanned aircraft, and we want to get ahead of this. We want to be a part of it. We see it as the future of uh, aviation. We've had uh, we had Kelvin Drogemeyer on the program years ago, who's now head of the White House Office of Science and Technology Policy. We almost had your governor on, but she she was just too busy. Uh, Mary Fallon had to be on. But just uh, kind of a little uh, background on how positive Oklahoma has been on UAS um, to get our listeners going. But uh, may, Jamie, maybe you can introduce yourself. Uh, tell the audience about yourself, a little bio, how you got involved with unmanned aircraft systems. Yeah, sure. You know, we can go uh, back a little bit. Uh, you know, when I was an undergraduate student uh, at the University of Oklahoma working on my aerospace engineering degree uh, is really when I got my uh, first taste of uh, UAS. And this was working on a project at that time uh, with a professor there named Carl Berge and some of the uh, researchers at the National Severe Storms Lab at the time on a, a tornado chaser design. So this was back in the 1980s, and you know the the idea was sound, but the technology just wasn't there yet. Uh, and so you know while we were able to get some systems to to fly, you know nothing that would really you know, do what we wanted to do in terms of you know making really sound atmospheric observations. And and I so I've been involved uh, you know with UAS to some degree uh, ever since. Uh, my first big project was when I was a, a professor at the University of Kentucky, working with Suzanne Smith there on a, a NASA project for the development of uh, Mars UAS, you know, to develop a system to fly a fixed-wing uh, remote UAS uh, on the Martian, um, uh, in the Martian atmosphere. And so that was, was uh, a was pretty that, interesting uh, project. Was that uh, did that eventually develop into that uh, folding fixed wing design? I, I did Aurora Flying Sciences come up with a design, or was that part of that content? Well, the, the, there were actually two different uh, you know competing designs at NASA at the time. Uh, one was the the Mars Ares uh, program out of the NASA Langley Research Center, and the other one mm -hmm. was uh, Keyhawk out of NASA Ames. And we we're pri primarily working with the NASA Ames folks. Uh, but, you know, that was an interesting project just from the standpoint of design configuration, you know, looking at all the design challenges you have in terms of coming up with a stowable UAS concept that also had to be completely autonomous. You know, we're, we're talking, you know, in the early 2000s at this time, uh, since obviously you can't pilot the vehicle from Earth when it's on Mars. Uh, so, you know, the entire Signal control latency. system – yeah, exactly. Yeah, so you, you really have no opportunity to do a remote piloting in that situation. So the aircraft has to be completely autonomous. Uh, and so again, that you know concept wasn't quite there. I mean, 20 years later, we just now have the the first UAS uh, going to Mars. It's on its way right now. The uh, the Ingenuity um, uh, you know multicopter. So you know, and here I was thinking that drones were new. Damn it! Yeah, <laughs> you caught me. You caught me short again. So uh, another, you know, since we're talking about that, uh, you know, there is no, um, let's say, 
positioning constellation around Mars. So what, what was the concept? I mean, we didn't have any GPS. We had a little issue with signal latency. How was was it just a pre-programmed pre flight plan? What, what, what was the concept with that? Yeah, you know, for, for the concepts that we were looking at at this time, you know, it was primarily you know, uh, doing a uh, high-altitude pull-out maneuver that would provide you know, uh, some data on high-resolution aerial surveys uh, as well as information about the atmosphere. And you know, at that time, you were trying to determine whether this would be a glider, or you, whether you would just you know, have the aircraft fly in and you know, fly for as long as possible, or potentially you know, do some controlled landings, uh, take some data on the ground, and then uh, lift off again. You're looking at some rocket-propelled concepts uh, to be able to do that, at least for some you know, uh, multiple flights rather than just one flight. And really, that's you know what it came came down to at that time is the technology just wasn't there. With, with the capability to do that, and we were using primarily ground mapping, you know, looking at reference targets on the ground to be able to uh, orient yourself and use an optical flow, you know, to help uh, to be able to track your path on the ground. Well, that's interesting. Yeah, and you know, there, there's definitely uh, some technological um, at the time some some hurdles to overcome. Interesting, interesting stuff. Um, so, you know, I want to talk a little bit about um, currently, what you're doing currently, you know, what, what types of uh, missions and research are you flying these days? Yeah, yeah, I should mention, you know, going back, uh, so yeah, I've been here at the uh, Oklahoma State University since 2006, and in 2015, we found the Unmanned Systems Research Institute, and that was really to, to catalyze a lot of the different areas of expertise that we had both within the School of Mechanical and Aerospace Engineering as well as across campus uh, to be able to work with our collaborators across the state. And that included uh, uh, James Grimsley, who's since you know, moved mm -hmm. on to the Choctaw Nation of Oklahoma, and they have a FAA UASIPP program. And so we've been working really closely with them uh, on, on different aspects, uh, different, um, you know, Aerospace integration concepts, uh, detect and avoid systems, uh, as well as some other projects. We have a new one that just started uh, through NASA, through the University Leadership Initiative uh, program uh, called WindMap. And that's primarily focused on getting atmospheric data at lower altitudes to help improve weather forecasting. And I kind of like this kind of going back full circle to where I first started on UAS as an undergraduate student, you know, working on this tornado chaser concept. And so that's what you guys are doing now, you still. Oh, go ahead. Yeah, Jeremy, I was just wondering, I'm, I'm going back through my database in my head, and I'm, I'm wondering, I went to the Oklahoma, uh, your, your flight research center there in Oklahoma when I was working with the, uh, with the Osage Indian Nation on their, their drone center. Did I, did, did I meet you then, or... Did, were you had any involvement with the uh, with the Osage on their flight center? Yeah, they, they, we we met then, Gene. Uh, so yeah, we had a discussion on it. They have a Skyway 36 site that they're working on as part of the Osage Nation. Yes. That's right. Okay, I thought I had met you before, and I'm you know I'm terrible with names. I had to, as we go through the process, I said, ah, okay, yeah, I met you. <sighs> so uh, yeah, how did that go? Or, or did the, the Osage continue on with that uh, that project? Or yeah, yeah, and they're they're still working on that project, and uh, we're helping them out as well. So you know they're making good progress forward. Outstanding! Uh, that's great. That's good news. 
See, I, I, this is another thing that I really like about the uh, podcast is we have guests on and people are like, oh, yeah, hey, you know, <laughs> yeah, I, I worked on that or yeah, that, yeah, I remember that from 10 years ago or whatever. And it is, uh, <laughs> it kind of yeah. keeps unfolding and giving. It's, it's a great thing. So, yeah, you know, I wasn't at the Best Buy that day, so I missed it. Um, as, you know, I keep joking about the Best Buy drone aisle, but yeah, so, I mean, it's interesting, you know, how this stuff progresses, people are thinking about this and using it, and, and it just cracks me up, uh, you know, every year or two, you get like a fresh crop of droners in here, which is good, because it's good to get new blood in here, and new ideas, and all the rest of that, but many of the new ideas and firsts with drones, and you guys probably can relate to this, have like... You know, you have to have like a string of qualifiers. First time somebody's used a drone on a Tuesday afternoon at 3.45 p.m. <laughs> with white sneakers and it flew here and did this, you know, whatever. You have to have all those qualifiers because it's a lot of it, it has been done. Uh, a lot of people have been working and quietly working in the background um, to do things with uh, this technology uh, really augmenting existing, you know, either work or whatever. But uh, interesting that that went along. So you mentioned James Grimsley. I actually saw him at um, one of the NASA UAM uh, symposiums that was out here at NASA Ames. And I was actually showing me some of the improvements that the Choctaws were going to make to their uh, IPP flight range. And I believe they were going to get their radar and do a bunch of other things. There's some exciting stuff out there, and they're actually going to build a park and everything else. So it, it looks like, um, as far as that's concerned, people must be using and flying and testing and doing things. I know that, um, you know, they're in Oklahoma, they're, they're, I, it, it was, I guess, Indian territory, and the laws changed, and now there's more jurisdiction. As, uh, so is it is it looking like this this uh, Oklahoma UAS thing is really just going to take off? We've got all of this land that's kind of a sovereign spot for people to fly. Or are you are you seeing this open up, or what's going on? Well, you you know, I I haven't seen any changes. You know, based upon what's happened previously, you know, with their airspace at the test site. Uh, so you know that's what we've been using. Uh, I think that's a good conversation to have uh, with James directly. You know about the the future uh, of their site. You know for for a coming uh, podcast. You know predominantly you know, on a day to day basis. You know we use our uh, unmanned aircraft flight station that we have near the university. So we have a BV loss corridor there that allows us to connect two different regions uh, with, with different COAs, and we have COAs wow. you know, across the state. That allows to fly, uh, you know, up to various altitudes under different conditions based upon the mission uh, that we're currently doing, you know, at, at that time. You know, whether it's detect and avoid or or other or BB loss missions or where we're whether we're doing this really for for atmospheric uh, measurements. Um, so, so we've also been doing a lot of visibility tests and um, ILS inspection tests for the FAA, and so that stuff is we've been conducting. Not only at our flight test facility, but also at the local airport. So, is that uh, that uh, beyond visual line of sight COA that you have? Is it in conjunction with uh, the IPP? Is this your own thing that you got with the university? What's the mechanics on that? Yeah, yeah. So that goes to the university directly. So, so that's separate wow. uh, from from the IPP. Uh, and so we've had that for about, I think, two years now. Well, that that, uh, that must be uh, handy for doing some of the work that you're talking about. Yeah, uh, yeah actually, you know, flight test. 
You're probably familiar with uh, Crately Epperson and his uh, Vigilant Aerospace Systems, you know, the company that they have for you know, de- developing, detect, and avoid um, software mm-hmm. using using some of the NASA uh, the algorithms that have been developed over the years. So we've been in, you know, using that corridor extensively, you know, for those tests as well as, you know, for some uh, uh, rapid response and first responder, you know, delivery tests. And so that's worked out really well for us. Well, that's cool. Um, yeah, I mean, it's, you know, it's always, um, so you've been around long enough uh, that you, I'm sure, remember the policy clarification of 2007. I do. <laughs> and, uh, yeah. you know, that kind of, uh, people, it's kind of funny as people are like, well, you know, there's this, you know, our regulations, uh, you know, stifling innovation and all the rest of that. And I'm sure since you were a uh, part of this before 2007, like uh, Gene and myself, uh yeah, call the tower, man. Do whatever you want. You know, I mean, you had to do it safe. It wasn't like it was willy nilly, but you could fly beyond visual line of sight or at night or whatever else. And you know, the let's say technological, we we were there. There were some limitations on on uh, some technology, but on the other hand, there were less limitations on actual applications and flying around uh, to develop concepts of operations and whatnot. Um, what. How did that affect you guys? I mean, you know, it's kind of a, it's a new, how did it affect you guys? Yeah, you, you know, it certainly uh, put the onus on us to, to do a lot more paperwork. Uh, you know, working with the FAA, you know, so, you know, as a as a public operator, you know, we want to make sure we fly by the rules, and you know that that certainly restricted, you know, what the art of the possible was, um, you know, at the time. So of course, you know, we were as aviators, you know, trying to be uh, safe and, you know, operate within the airspace as safely as possible uh, uh, prior to that. And so I don't necessarily think that was a, you know, a, a bad thing because you know, it was certainly getting to be a little bit of the wild, wild west, you know, for, for UAS at that time. Yeah, it uh, was. But, yeah, it certainly did, you know, kind of restrict what we what we could do for a while, um, you know, until the FAA started, you know, putting uh, other regulations in place. Right. Yeah. Did uh, well. You know, going from the wild blue yonder to nothing. Uh, I know for myself, there were several years. I, I you know, it's like okay, it's going to pack this in until we wait the sixty or ninety days to get the regulation at the uh, FAA UAPO at the time said that uh, we were going to have, and then you know it never materialized. Um, I don't know. Put a, put about a nine year damper on things, and you know, a lot of people that were innovators and into this before that were like saying, you know, these these systems that we did build, like Aerosond or Scan Eagle or whatever, wouldn't exist um, if those uh, the the ban was in place or the regulations are in place. But anyway, so now we finally have the 107 thing. It seems like uh, you guys have COAs and uh, things like that, so you you have workarounds and places to fly, um, and that's. That's interesting. So it has allowed the work to continue, and some of the work uh, is, is, let's say, uh, award-winning. Well, certainly, you know, and I think you know, from here, from our perspective, uh, since we started doing this, you know, back in back in the '90s here, and you know, really kind of building up an expertise and capabilities for you know students at both the undergraduate and graduate level uh, to manufacture custom UAS. Yeah, you know, that that's provided us a, a pretty unique niche and capability in terms of, you know, rather than just you know, going with off-the-shelf systems, 
you know, being able to design and develop custom platforms for, you know, a variety of different customers, you know, whether it's the government or uh, or industry. Um, and certainly we try to be agnostic when it comes to, you know, various platforms. We use whatever is best at the current time uh, that kind of makes the most, you know, economical sense. And so we use a lot of off-the-shelf platforms. Um, but, you know, in other scenarios, you know, it really – when we're required to build something, you know, custom, you know, we can do that pretty easily. Yeah, well, and that was another question I was going to uh, ask you is uh, some of the some of the systems. Okay, so you're you know an old timer in the in the drone sphere or ecosystem. Um, another thing that I find kind of interesting with some of the newcomers is you know you say, oh, I have a fixed wing system, and people are like, that's not a drone. Has one yeah. propeller on it, yeah. so <laughs> uh, and that's kind of interesting. You know, somebody else commented the other day on on LinkedIn. I spent a lot of time on there making uh, comments and, and and whatnot. But uh, you know, oh, uh, I'm you know I do this work with my drone, and and a lot of what people are doing is I would say augmenting existing uh, business plans with you know a, a a chinese quadcopter which is not a bad thing in and of itself but there's so much more that could be done um let's say range wise time wise with uh let's say uh fixed wing aircraft because you have that uh, passive lift thing going so right um, right you know, I'm sure there there are uh, other jobs. You know that you're doing like this tornado chasing and gathering weather and stuff. You need a little bit more than 15 minutes of flight time. Is that safe to say? Yeah, certainly. You know, and, and you know the the platforms are, we typically use on a day to day basis are obviously quite a bit uh, quite a bit larger as well. Uh, you know, going back to you know what you mentioned about you know kind of that that disparity. You know, uh, I, I come from the era when. You know, we were RC pilots first before there was a thing such as uh, UAS, and you know that was all fixed wing, right? It was it was either that or you know uh, um, uh, helicopters, right? And so those those yeah. are the two options Very that you had. Very difficult to fly. Yeah, yeah, and so you know you end up having uh, buck hoppers uh, and you know, fixed wings competing at the RC field, and certainly in the last decade, you know, we've seen a, a change in that community. Uh, where it's brought a lot of you know new participants in, but you know likewise you kind of have the old school is like well you know fixed wing are the real aircraft and you know these are just fancy little toys, uh, but you know they each have their their place and so you know we uh, are still predominantly you know focused on fixed wing aircraft for you know our research and our systems, but you know we'll we'll use whatever platform you know makes the most sense you know for our research applications. Uh, and certainly, you know, using, um, you know, uh, uh, DGI systems when we have to for, you know, payload testing, you know, those work out just fine sometimes. And certainly for the counter UAS research we do, that's pretty much required uh, because, you know, those are the systems that are pretty much ubiquitous in the, in the counter UAS community. Um, and likewise for visibility tests, you know, when we're – testing pilots to their ability to be able to spot uh, UAS, you know, in their particular flight path. You know, since there are so, you know, many more quadcopters and there are fixed wings, you know, those tend to be the platform of choice we use as well. Yeah, I want to flash back into the RC pan there for a second because, you know, I think that is also something that is, um, let's say, evolved 
where the newcomers now are like, I'm an RC guy. I fly RC. I love RC. And, uh, you know, nothing against the uh, RTFs, the ready to flies. Um, but I'm sure both of you gentlemen remember the back in the day where <clears throat> you basically had to cobble together your own system, whatever it is. You know, uh, you had to design, build, and maintain a, a system to gather the data you needed. And I know, you know, I know Gene, I've, I've, you know, with the RP flight systems in here, you know, the wing is the thing. Yep. Gene, Gene was a yep. big wing guy, which people are like, you're crazy. And that stuff will never work. I, <laughs> I remember the arguments in the old days. God, I wish you would know, write a book about that one. The FAA will never regulate us. You're crazy, and you know I've been I've been called crazy so many times. I've had a dollar for each time I'd be uh, Jeff Bezos. Not really, but maybe after taxes, I don't know. Anyway, so the uh, but I think about it now. People pull this stuff out of a box. They're like, I'm a you know hobbyist. You know, there's no skin in the game. You know, you didn't you didn't build it. Not that I'm deriding you for not building it or paying it or whatever. I really like to fly scale stuff. But, you know, real RC flying that got regulated was really self, self-limiting, self right? Yeah. I mean, you know, you flew away out of visual line yeah. of sight. Bye-bye. You know. Well, and, and if you if you think about it, a lot of the, uh, the, the binding flies already have a gyro in them so that, uh, you know, you can let go of the sticks and it'll self-write. Whereas, you know, when we, we took that maiden flight, it was all on you. Yeah, you know, you were on the sticks and – and you either sank or you swam, one of the two. And generally, you know, if your design was off a little bit, you took your airplane home in a garbage bag. Yeah, that was the uh, – I remember that. I came up with that NTSB uh, uh, crash site investigation kit, which was a one-pager you downloaded and printed off the Internet in a hefty bag. <laughs> you put everything on there and taped the form onto the bag. Here you go. Uh but you are correct. If you didn't do the, the math on your CG or, you know, your, your um, let's say, motor, ESC, battery combo was not up to, you know, you didn't have that all calced out with your prop or whatever, you know, you're going down. That's just the way it was. I, Jeremy, you, you probably uh, had a few issues with trial and error over the years. Or did you just yeah, nail it every yeah. time? Well, certainly, and I'm a big proponent, you know, of using autopilots in the system primarily because I am a pretty bad RC pilot. Uh, so, you know, <laughs> having those systems, you know, has has saved my bacon, uh, you know, qu- quite a few times. And you know, that's why when I, I prefer to go out and you know let students pilot the aircraft because they tend to be a lot better uh, than than I am on that. And you know, having the computer on board, I, I'm all for that as much as possible. Well, you know, it certainly it just, does reduce the amount of uh, students that get discouraged very quickly. Yeah, there is that. Yeah, I remember the days when you, you just like you were saying, you go out and you know you uh, your trial by fire was you know building up your RC aircraft and then you know crashing that on your first flight and then having to go back and rebuild it. And you know that that's what that's what made you a true RC pilot was you were able to come back after that. So exactly, yep. don't put the sensor on until it's been tested. That's right. Unless you like buying uh, new electronics, you know. Uh, but, you know, it's the other thing is I, I learned that, too, working for the uh, military. You know, it's all how you uh, write up the after-action report. And personally, I don't crash. I have aborted takeoffs and unscheduled landings only. Of course. Um, <laughs> if nope. nothing else, I, I learned how to write that up anyway. Yeah, no comment, Patrick. 
Exactly. <laughs> uh, so yeah, I mean, you know, it's great. We're reminiscing here about the old uh, old uh, times with the uh, visual line of sight actually limiting your your RC hobby. And I really, you know, that deal. I've been kind of beating this drum for for years that the hobbyists got regulated. I mean, the concept. You know, we're all a little bit older probably on this on this podcast, but the concept that we are going to not regulate you by regulating you. Um, I don't know. Yeah, I don't know how anybody fell for that one because that's you know, okay. I'll buy that for a dollar. Um, anyway, moving on from there. So you're, you guys are building your own systems. You are a school of uh, uh, engineering and aeronautics and whatnot. So that must be pretty handy. You say, okay, well here's our here's our uh, let's say concept for a flight envelope and the data that we want to collect, which I do want to talk about the data we're collecting for uh, the tornado warning thing. I think the weather thing is really interesting and in how that works. Um, so you have that capability. You can, you can go, all right, we need X, Y, Z and you know, here, let's work on that. Or is that, or is am I just in dreamland? No, no, certainly. And you know, this kind of goes back to, uh, you know, the, the current effort we have with NASA right now, which is really focused on, you know, improving weather forecasting. And so working with meteorologists at the National Weather Center and the National Center for Atmospheric Research in terms of you know, asking them what data do you need uh, to be able to improve your forecasts, you know, both for, you know, severe weather scenarios, but even more importantly for advanced aerial mobility applications, you know, in urban locations, you know, being able to get that data and uh, and those predictions. And, you know, and it's, um, you know, again, we you know, tend to uh, oversimplify this as, you know, when you start getting into it and say, ah, oh, it's just going to be easy to slap a sensor on and get the things like temperature, pressure, humidity that you need, and you're done, right? But, you know, integrating that stuff into the aircraft and making sure that your data is accurate and then being able to, to validate that and calibrate the systems uh, and, you know, get that data back in a timely fashion, quality control, check it, and then be able to get that to the scientists who can actually use it for, uh, you know, their, to develop their new algorithms and models. You know, it's a, it's a long process to be able to do that from start to finish. It is. And I think that's one, one thing that uh, a lot of people miss that, let's say, buy ready-to-fly systems, you know, uh, even again, uh, you know, my, my commercial experience, tinker experience, military experience, it's one thing to, you know, let's say, be in a sterile environment in, in uh, you know, someplace and building a system and thinking, oh, God, you know, this is going to work. And then you get out in the field and all of the limitations of let's say the real world uh, kick in, and if you don't have both of those, um, very hard to make things work. And that's always you know people have asked me about that. And really, it's the guys out in the field who are learning to overcome the limitations of the technology, um, and then also you know integrating all of these sensor packages. And and that's really hard to do out in the field on the back of a flatbed truck or on the tailgate of a truck when it's either 120 degrees or, you know, down near freezing really makes uh, life difficult, which you probably don't know anything about that, right, Jamie? 
<laughs> yeah, you know, we yeah. we were just uh, we we've been in an ice storm the last two days, and so we were out in the field yesterday. We thought, well, we're going to take this opportunity. We get good icing conditions, so you know, we can learn a little bit more about you know how icing affects uh, UAS operations as well on that side. And on the other side, you know, learn more about the actual physics of icing. And so it actually ended up being a great day for us in terms of going out and getting observations. But you know, going back to your, your point about that, you know, the, the field testing piece, um, you know, it can be understated how you know, important that is in terms of having your systems ready and then going out, you know, being, a, being able to go out and get actual, you know, usable data. And, you know, I'll um, uh, shout out to... Brian Argero's team at University of Colorado and Adam Houston's group at University of Nebraska, who have been doing this for several years now, and they've been able to get really impressive results. Uh, it's it's a it's a learning curve. I mean, same uh, Gene. I know over the years, uh, you know, you you that field work. You've you've done a lot of trial and error yourself on uh, getting this stuff to work and collect what you want. I don't know. This for me, uh, you know, there's nothing uh, more fun. Than uh, you know, being in in the elements and uh, trying to put something together, you really have to think so many steps ahead. But that you know, that's what separates the um, uh, let's say the I guess the pros from the non-pros or whatever. But uh, <clears throat> if you can get that data and bring it back, and it is usable by people uh, that you, that you're trying to get it for, it's really impressive and it's a good feeling to uh, overcome all of that adversity to be able to deliver the, the end product. So, you know, and I know that's, I'm preaching to the choir here on this, uh, this deal. So we're almost, uh, we're almost out of time. As I always tell everybody, you know, the 45 minutes happens quick. Um, some people, Oh, it's too long. It's too short. Hey, you know, turn it off, whatever you want to do. But before we run out of time here, um, Jamie, I was wondering, you know, is there a website where listeners could learn more about what you guys are doing over there? Sure, yeah. If you go to our website, usri.okstate.edu, uh, you'll you'll find us there as well as uh, on a Facebook under the Unmanned Systems Research Institute uh, and also UAS Weather on Facebook. And uh, so, yeah, we, we kind of you know, update our, our links pretty regularly about the different projects that we're working on. So we have some really great stuff come down the pike, working on uh, electric VTOL and hybrid systems, uh, you know, using uh, a gas turbine aircraft. And so, you know, it'll be exciting to come back in, you know, maybe a year or two in the future and update you on where we're at. Yeah, I'd like to do that because, you know, I also, I've been uh, dabbling in the UAM thing since inception. And, and it's exciting, and people are like, well, you're a little negative on that. And I said, well, you know, there's some physics, uh, some real world obstacles to overcome with UAM. Um, yeah, I, I agree. And, you, you, you know, you know how I feel about the, the whole UAS hype that, you know, we were in. You know, five to ten years ago, how it's going to you know change everything, and you know we needed a real dose of reality to be able to say, well, you know, there are technical hurdles and there are regulatory hurdles, and you know those are both going to take a long time to solve, and, and I believe that in the UAM side as well, uh, but I do think it also holds a lot of promise, yeah, just as. Yeah, as long as we say it's not going to happen in January of 2021, you know, there are a couple of years uh, for us to see this uh, stuff come to fruition. Yeah, well, you know, I, I, you know, I talk to people about this all day. Oh, you're so negative. It's like, look, man, you know, I'm not negative. I know 
that we can do it in this country. Fifty years ago, we put people on the moon. They came back. I don't understand how come we can't uh, integrate a 251-gram drone into the NASA. I just, I don't. I, they're they're arbitrary or um, you know false obstacles that are being thrown in there. I, I I think that we could use science to do beyond visual line of sight now. And some of you guys are out there doing it and proving it and proving that it can be done safely. So, you know. Um, I think they need to loosen the reins a little bit more on that, and then maybe we would see the uh, promise of it. But anyway, we're uh, almost out of time here. So, uh, Jamie, you know, thanks so much for coming on. As uh, It's always great talking to professionals uh, and hear what they're doing. So thanks again for being on. Happy to be here. Thanks for the opportunity. Sure, and we will definitely uh, need to talk in the future, especially about the UAM thing. Gene, as always, it's great for you to come on and, and add your historical perspective, so thank you. Great to be back, and uh, hope to see us do more of these things. Uh, i got a whole list of guests I want to have on. we got some interesting people that are going to be coming on, as always. I mean, I you know, try and get people who know their stuff. But anyway, thanks to all the listeners for being on. Thank you guys again, and until next time, have a you know, have a good uh, good time out there learning. Stay warm. Take care. <laughs>